Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. David, I have a question for you. What's your question? So we know in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, we have a character named Moaning Myrtle, whose primary feeling is sadness, right? But in The Great Gatsby, we also have a character named Moaning Myrtle. What's her primary feeling, do you think? Well, she's dead, but I don't think... (laughs) That she uh, she has many primary feelings. We're, we aren't given a lot of perspectives from her, but I guess it would be desire for a better life. <laughs> Sorry, I read it wrong. It's not Moaning Myrtle at Great Gatsby. It's uh, Myrtle Who Moans. <laughs> I don't know if that helps change Is your answer really? at all. Wow. <laughs> I, didn't, I did not know that. <laughs> nor, nor do I think, I don't know. That's weird. I, I just point that out to observe how J.K. Rowling must have a little bit of a tongue in her cheek to name one of her characters Moaning Myrtle in a book going to be read by teenagers. Yeah, but I think, you know, most of the people who read that this book were probably younger than teenagers when they first read it. I guess so, yeah. Right? Like, maybe they weren't even sexualized yet. <laughs> I guess not. Well... I mean, who knows? I, 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 was, I didn't go to public school like you. Uh... <laughs> Well, I want to congratulate you, David, on being able to suck all of that joke of its juvenile uh, nothingness. I feel like that's like part of our bit now. Yeah, you, I, uh, I dirty the floor and you clean it up. Exactly. <laughs> or or exactly. I, 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 I get all the bathroom water on the floor and you mop it up, perhaps better for this <laughs> particular Ooh, episode. There you go. Yuck. <laughs> so yes, today we are doing our second in the Harry Potter, what would seven of them be called? What's a seven-book saga? A septology? I didn't even know they had names. Well, like if three is a trilogy. Yeah, no, I get that, but I didn't know that seven could have a name. There's not very many sevens out there. Well, it has to. I mean, a week? That's true. (laughs) Or? (laughs) Well, why don't we just call it this this week? (laughs) Oh, man. We could go on for days with that one. <laughs> it's true, but we need to get into the the meat of this uh, this tale. Chamber of Secrets. So, mm-hmm. had you read this book before this go over? Yes, yes, I had read. Uh, I think I read the first four Harry Potter books, and then I haven't read the last three. So, mm. I had read it before, but this this read through was uh, obviously very different than the first time. I I think I'm just getting a lot more out of it than I did last time, and I think you know. Mm. Being a part of this podcast, being part of this community where we talk so deeply about the things that we read, it really makes you read things more carefully. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and I mean, I had never read The Chamber of Secrets before this go-around for this episode, but I had seen the movie, so I knew the story, more or less, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I knew what happened in Chamber of Secrets, 
And I've also, over the last couple of years, uh, this particular Harry Potter book, I've heard Jordan Peterson talk about a lot as well. He references a lot of, especially the third act climactic scene as like... That's true. Basically getting everything right, mythopoetically, (laughs) from J.K. Rowling's point of view in this. So I'm I'm excited. And, And yeah, you're right, reading it... I mean, I'm going to I'm going to start off big and bold. I, like this is almost a perfect book in my opinion. Wow. Yeah. I would love, I, I'd like to hear why you think that. That's, yeah, uh, that's like, a, a for, bold claim. Forget about all of the very deep and enriching story points that build out to like morality and lesson learning and good life skills. Like this is such a tight narrative that it really was a wellspring for me both intellectually and i guess for like my, my the, the my book soul right <laughs> the yeah, part of my soul that loves books literary appreciation right she just does such a good job of introducing things early in the story that are relevant later in the story but in a different context and so yeah. it's just it's per- like the, the the word everyone knows is foreshadowing but i feel like it's even a step beyond foreshadowing like it's for building i'm thinking specifically of like when Harry and Ron are trying to escape from the forest with the spiders, a lesser writer would have to deuce ex machina them out of there, right? Whereas yeah. she shows that that's where the car goes at the beginning of the right. book, right? So the right. fact that, you know, a hundred pages earlier, we have an organic, separate, not related reason for the car to be where it is. And so that it's not gratuitous when it comes back to help Harry and Ron. Like you could say, well, why does the car want to help? I mean, that's a that's a different question and kind of silly, but just at the more like structural level, it's like, wow. And then now that I'm thinking about it, she does that all the time in her books. Just oh, it's kind of one of one of the brilliances of what she does. Introducing something in the early part of the book for a different reason that's organic, that it plays a major role later in the book. That's also organic and, like you could say, coincidental, but really it's already painted why that thing should be there. And so it's not, it doesn't outrage our sense of disbelief that it's there, you know? What do you think, uh, what do you think it is in us psychologically that loves that kind of detail and and being reminded of what we read about earlier? Like, that's such a, a key component of storytelling, right? Is it, it has to be connected to other parts of the story to really to feel uh whole wholesome but like is life like that what is it psychologically that we we so appreciate about that well i mean in one sense life has to be like that because it has to play out the way it does right so if we don't get rescued in our regular lives by something it's because something wasn't there (laughs) or if we do something was there right i think in stories why it's more satisfying is because it it feels like the creator of the story is less lazy. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, like I, that's true. Uh, or, or maybe a more technical way to put it is that like, if you know how you want your book to end and then you reverse engineer the story all the way back to the beginning so that, and you do it meticulously. So nothing is just kind of left to chance or that would outrage our disbelief. Whereas, you know, if you're writing a story beginning to end only, you might forget. <laughs> you you right. can often forget what you started with. And so by the time True. you get to your third act, you're like, oh, well, how am I going to get the, the characters out of this pickle? <laughs> so so that was just, True. yeah, that True. was a big thing I noticed in Chamber of Secrets is that it just felt like so many things, like another one of them 
why does Colin Creevy survive the basilisk? Oh, because he's already a photographer and already right. lenses prevent death, right? They're a reflection of light or a refraction. I can't remember. So it makes sense why he would have a camera at his face. It's not just like, oh, isn't it lucky that Colin had a camera at his face? It's already established right. that that's what he does, right? Right. True. So, True. and then, you know, Hermione is smart. So it makes sense that she uses a mirror because she knows about the basilisk, right? Like it's just these little tiny things or the fact that the very first time the basilisk comes out, there's water on the floor, right? Just these these tiny little clues, breadcrumbs even left that culminate. And that's only one reason why I think this is a perfect book. Another one is that the genius, again, like Harry Potter has so saturated culture that it's basically impossible to think of one book without knowing the whole story. Kind of like how, like with Star Wars, right? You Mm -hmm. can't imagine Star Wars without Vader being Luke's dad, but we even don't find that out until the end of the second movie. True. So like trying to put yourself in the mind, just the reveal that Tom Riddle is Voldemort is genius. It's just genius. It's, It's, uh... It's a huge moment. And 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 to have that all be hap- playing out in the past, right? Exactly, yes. You're we're, we're jumping between timelines seamlessly here. Mhm. And then, I mean, we'll talk about it next time, but in Prisoner of Azkaban, this is done again really well with other characters who everyone has a different like characters in the book and us as the readers. We have a particular attitude to particular characters that she is almost at a genius level, able to wield to manipulate our feelings so that when it's revealed to be something else, we feel gut punched. You know? True. Like True. in the in the way that Harry is gut punched when he finds out who Tom Riddle really is. Because he kind of feels like Tom Riddle a little bit. Well he and he well, for sure, but also he feels like Tom Riddle is on his side. Tom Riddle was a hero. Tom Riddle beat the basilisk the last time, right? As opposed yeah. to he is the heir. You know, like this is just, it's like, and also this book is kind of a mystery story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like Harry Potter books are part detective novel. Like they're almost mm-hmm. like they throw a little bit of, you know, like Sir Walter Scott in there. Yeah. So I just finished today, actually, uh, or yesterday, finished Prisoner of Azkaban for our our next one after this one. So I've read now the first three. And of these three, I think Chamber of Secrets is my favorite to read. Yeah. uh, Just because of all of these things. And it feels like from every angle, this book works, you know? It's true. And just the evolution of some of the characters, like how much more we learn about Malfoy in this right? Yeah. He becomes less one-dimensional, and we get more of his prejudice, but also we see his dad, so we see where it all comes from in a way that is so... In such a, in a book for kids, it's just so messes with what you're supposed to think about Malfoy, you know? Like, yeah. I hate him more and feel more sorry for him all at the same time in this book. So that's like <laughs> that, that kind of like cloudiness of your own opinion of another person is is really interesting i think no i i I agree there's uh, a lot to be said for that so i mean if you're a dyed in the wool harry potter fan i would love to talk about chamber of secrets because again i would reiterate this is almost a perfect book everything works with everything else it's such a powerful story the things in it are so meaningful and 
again, it's such a great f- talk about four building. Like the fact that, I mean, this is spoiler for Deathly Hallows. The fact that he destroys the book, the Tom Riddle's diary, he destroys it in the context of Chamber of Secrets. He destroys it as the thing that is making Tom be able to hold his wand and control him, right? Or, or like yep. have him yep. have him be at his mercy. But in the grander scheme, he destroys a Horcrux, right? <laughs> like, right. It's just it's which it's, we don't even realize is happening. Exactly. At the time. It it recontextualizes that previous scene, which this series is genius at, and J.K. Rowling did a, a, a phenomenal job at. I think the more there, I'm there's reading, there's some there's something in the human psyche that just really appre- I think you know what I was thinking about it. It has a lot to do with how we are with friends mm, when we're okay. telling when we're hanging out with good friends we're telling old stories often mm-hmm. right yeah and i think that's how we feel whenever uh rowling brings up some moment that we remembered with fondness from our previous read yeah. it's like a nostalgia producing machine yeah exactly yeah so it's just i mean i'm sure she had all seven books like, I'm sure she had the Horcrux Voldemort angle figured out even before she wrote the first book. Yeah. I, I really yeah. feel like this this story is so well told that it has to be almost entirely reverse engineered, I feel like. So. Which is, yeah. I mean, that 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 is crafting a narrative. And all of those things are kind of like story or literary based. And that isn't even beginning to scratch the surface of the meat of this book. Which there's so much great stuff in. So just before we give a plot rundown, this is our first remote recording with David having a, what would you call it, a pimp and microphone. Yeah, like the real deal. (laughs) The real deal. So I'm I'm excited. Hopefully, if the sound is really off on this one, I don't know what to tell you because I don't know what else we could get. But we haven't heard too many bad things about that, the sound from people. So, I mean, please do tell us if you don't like it, but... People seem to be all right with it. Yep. So we really love making this podcast for all of you. And if you enjoy uh, this podcast and you get any value of it, we would really appreciate a rating or a review on the uh, iTunes app. Five-star rating and a review are some of the best ways for us to move up the charts. So if that's how you feel inclined to do, we would really appreciate that. I mean, if you want to give us a one-star review, that's fair too, if that's how you feel. All I ask is that you give an authentic one. If you really hate us, if if like it's that bad, then you know. Hopefully, it's not just because um, I have a basilisk stuck in my throat, or uh, or David true. has a uh, has <laughs> a petrification of his uh, thoughts or something. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if you want to get in contact with us, you can send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail dot com. Uh, we have a Facebook group. You can join on there and interact with us, and we post new episodes when it comes out on there if you subscribe on any of the major podcasting apps you'll be notified every time a new episode comes out we know as we step into the harry potter world even further that uh this is a very sacred world for a lot of people and it's and it's a it's a it's something that's very dear to people's hearts and even though it's not dear to my heart in the same way i'm sure it is to a lot of you i do have things that are dear to my heart like that uh such as star wars so i definitely know that feeling and true, uh true. hopefully you can tell that david and i are doing our our best and authentic and sincerely give this series i think the attention it deserves 
<laughs> it's a weird thing to say about Harry Potter that it deserves more attention than it's getting, but uh, I almost I mean, feel that maybe, way. Maybe the respect that it deserves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As, you know, a cornerstone of a lot of people's literary lives. Yeah. Lives. <laughs> so uh, I imagine many people have read this book, but basically this book opens up with Harry back at the Dursleys, and he has to be quiet in his room because the Dursleys are having this family over that Vernon, his uncle, is trying to impress, and that's where we meet Dobby, the house elf for the first time and Dobby is telling is warning Harry Potter basically not to go back to Hogwarts and then through a series of hilarious events tries to make it so Harry can't go back to Hogwarts because he he's warning Harry that there's danger there Harry goes back to Hogwarts eventually after not heeding Dobby's warning there's several well, and there's the flying car incident yeah the flying car yeah the flying car so Ron and his brothers break him out they go back to Ron's house uh, they can't get into the train station. <laughs> they run into the wall. It's quite funny. And so uh, they have to take the car. They fly the car to Hogwarts. The car, they get stuck in the Whomping Willow. The car goes into the Forbidden Forest. They kind of emerge heroes among their peers and yet in trouble. And they have detention with their teachers because yep. of said shenanigans. Uh, which is also Thanks. hilarious how much like there's just this kind of tension between what the wizards do and then like making sure the muggles don't know what the wizards do. <laughs> yeah. It's quite it's like, funny. It's one of those world building things that just makes sense in the world. But then when you think about it, you're like, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I guess they would have to do that. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just funny. It's like an almost a layered joke where they have a, a wing of the ministry bureaucracy to just like basically men in black, everyone <laughs> from, yeah. like yeah. neuralize them, like make all the muggles forget what they see. <laughs> it's quite funny they do they do yeah and so anyway as time goes on this year at hogwarts we learn that the chamber of secrets has been opened and this is a chamber that through legend apparently exists somewhere in hogwarts but no one has found it except apparently this tom riddle guy found it one time or or caught hagrid who apparently opened it last time i think it was like 50 years ago they said was it 50 something like that it was yeah and so Harry only knows this because he finds this Tom Riddle's diary and starts reading, and, and it's like a secret diary, so you have to like write into it, and then words appear. It's kind of cool, actually. And um, in the midst of all this, there's this kind of side plot of Malfoy calling Hermione a mudblood, which is gets into like the whole prejudice angle of wizards versus muggles, which is really interesting, and how all that plays out. And then um, kids around the school start getting petrified by the monster. And on top of all of that, people start uh, start distrusting Harry because he can talk to snakes, we find out, yep. through one battle. And then on top of all of this, we have this just, like, gratuitously unlikable teacher named Lockhart, who is <laughs> just the worst. I viscerally hated him. And I know I'm supposed to, so good job. But I was just like, I thought that him being confused was too much. I wanted him to die by the basilisk. <laughs> and then uh, then basically there's this culmination at the end where uh, Harry and Ron find the Chamber of Secrets. Harry confronts, well, Harry goes into the chamber, finds Ginny there. And Ginny has been controlled by this Tom Riddle character who we learn is actually the teenage version of Lord Voldemort. There's a kind of final battle between Harry and the Basilisk, who is the king serpent or the largest snake kind of thing. And Harry 
is able to defeat the basilisk by I think it's it's a, the sword of Gryffindor comes to him in the sorting hat that the phoenix brings that was also Dumbledore's phoenix, <laughs> and so that was like that's I think literally makes no sense but metaphorically is quite powerful, and then once the basilisk is dead but Harry's also dying but then the tears of the phoenix heal and he's able to kill the diary which kills the memory of tom riddle and he saves Ginny, and everyone is okay but we just we get so much more backstory to the voldemort saga which i think is amazing and yeah. um that sets us up for the third book so anyway i was thinking just because it's the start of the book we could start with the kind of harry dobby uh yeah I'm connection being, being stuck with the dursleys again and his life's even more miserable because they Find out he's not allowed to use magic. Mm-hmm. So what were your first takes of Dobby and Dobby's place in the book? Like the whole, I, I guess the concept of like this servant that like is tied to you by some magical force is, is kind of creepy, to be honest. <laughs> the fact that he like hits himself and like punishes himself when he does anything wrong. Like I found it a little bit uh, off-putting. Mm. Well, do you find the genie and aladdin off-putting no and that's the interesting thing right like because they seem like almost the same thing except he's not really a genie he's kind of an ugly little creature i guess no. his appearance doesn't matter but, but he's yeah. quite powerful right mm-hmm. like he is True. actually quite magically strong so yeah true yeah, no, I agree. True. I mean, and we see the the terrible abuse Dobby gets from Lucius Malfoy, who's actually the family that owns him, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. But what I thought was so interesting in the first, I guess it was the first or second chapter, is the fact that Harry is kind to Dobby blows Dobby's mind. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like it just totally, that at all. And, and it taps into, um, it made me think of this uh, psychological bias called the anchoring bias, where the way you're like first in introduced into something anchors how you feel about any subsequent interactions in that area or that field. And so the fact that Dobby is anchored to the idea that any master would be cruel to him, right? Like that's his basically default or norm. The, the fact that he's like, Harry is so kind to him blows his mind. And yet Harry on his own part, can't imagine being any other way. Right. Like it's just, just this is Harry being Harry. And it just, it really made me think outside of Harry Potter, but like the, the, the different, um, the different ways people interpret how to treat other people or how to be treated by other people and something that can be so kind of like blase for you and me, which is just like a sincere interest in another person could be just so overwhelmingly wonderful for somebody else. Yeah, you never know what other people are going through, right? Like some people are way more lonely than we think. And I think, you know, just little acts of kindness like Harry gives to Dobby mm-hmm. can can do wonders for people's psyche. Yeah, because you don't know where people are anchored to, right? And I feel like it's almost weird in that scene because it's it's just about as surprising for Harry that Dobby is surprised as Dobby is surprised that Harry's kind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like Harry yeah. himself is almost a little taken aback by how Dobby is reacting to his kindness. It's true. And that definitely made me think a lot about like my own life where, and I think you can relate to this, 
we were raised in in households and ways that were so kind and loving and and ch- and cherished us that we kind of assumed that to be the norm i think yeah and so yeah. i've had numerous times in my life where i am what i consider to be just basically basic good manners to someone and they are really surprised at my level of kindness <laughs> right <laughs> you know right. yeah and it's true. a good like reflective exercise i guess in understanding that that kind of stuff that's you know like our granola basically it could be someone's um souffle (laughs) man you remember granola we ate a lot of granola growing up right yeah 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 so i was (laughs) i was quite heartened by that kind of realization it's like no there's a there's a lot of ways of you you don't know someone's background so like basic kindness can travel a lot further for some people than you might think especially if it's your baseline Mm -hmm. you know oh you're right it's good plato's uh be kind to strangers for theirs is a hard path too you know everyone's is right well and i mean think about how in the story harry's kindness influences dobby later yes right like if we think about the stuff dobby does for harry later in the books very um, important. You can't imagine him being particularly inclined to do that if Harry hadn't been that kind of him. And then it's kind of very like, like Frodo's kindness to Golem. Yeah. And then in a very genie Aladdin like way, he kind of sets Gollum. him free, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> With true. giving him the sock. I thought that was just genius. I thought that was so fun. <laughs> it is good. Yeah. It is good. So yeah, I mean he's not I guess he's not in the book very much, but um you know. No. It was it was something great that character. great character. So, I mean, look, uh, my notes about Harry are story dependent. So, why don't you just was it was there any new things about Harry you thought were revealed in this book? Maybe around like the snake stuff, like him being able to speak parcel tongue and learning that that whole yeah, part. Yeah, I think like we're not I mean, the first book we get this idea of Harry that's that's very innocent. Still, you know, a little arrogant, still a little bit like, like, you know, we asked, we talked about last time and now we're getting more background. Now we're, now we're discovering why the series is called Harry Potter, right? <laughs> Cause really this, the story of his discovering his past and then marching into his future is the, you know, the thread that binds these books, the thread that binds all of these relationships, all of these people, it's all centrally f- focused on Harry, right? And and now we're beginning to understand why. That's, I think, I feel like this book, you know, the last book, it just like, it's sort of assumed. The next book, things develop, right? Mm. Yeah, that whole, that whole segment though, with him being, starting to be a little bit ostracized by the school it, it it just so perfectly captured the pain or the the sideways feeling of of like high school gossip you know yeah but i feel like that's a pretty common theme for harry it happens to him it happened to him in the first book too right yeah but it felt more intense in this one for sure true true but it just i don't know it was it was interesting maybe i just thought about it more this time but how Harry is dealing with something he about himself he doesn't quite know how to deal with and 
he's getting like sideways glances and, and a kind of evil eye almost from the other students at the school. And even like in, within Gryffindor, it feels like some of the people aren't as kind to him as they usually would be. And I just was feeling so kindred to that of like, Oh my gosh, the rumor mill is going. No one is, no one is giving any charitable interpretation to what happened to Harry. No, it's just straight. It's just all like, basically they think harry is trying to make the snake attack that justin kid no it's true they don't have any evidence for that and no it just it was a it was a really great encapsulation of the pain i think of uh rumors i guess and they can yeah they can i mean it's not it's funny how rumors can change too right Mm -hmm. the facts the reality of the lived experience is very often different, at least in my experience, from, you know, the rumors. Yeah. And they happen all the time, right? Like, rumors destroy people's lives. And it's not just in high school or when you're younger. Like, there are rumors that can really impact your standing in social situations, right? Mm. And I guess I think what I enjoy often in in the Harry Potter world is those kind of heroic moments where the teachers come in and provide an alternative viewpoint for Harry or one of the other characters. I mean, it's obviously mostly Dumbledore, but there's some, there's sometimes like even McGonagall can be quite, I mean, she's obviously really strict, but she's also provides perspective sometimes for Harry, which I think is like the portrayal of the right kind of adult in the in life to help with that to help with these issues that come up for kids that are inevitable because of the kind of species we are right yeah yeah <laughs> so, good mentorship right yeah and i mean i guess that's why we learn to dislike snape so much is that it just doesn't feel like he's ever looking for that charitable interpretation of harry's um he just doesn't like harry yeah well and we learn about that more in the third book right it's uh it's just again more great foreshadowing or forebuilding. <laughs> yep. Yeah. But yeah, I just I I was really impacted by all of that. And it's like and it's really great as a motif as well because it's because of something that Harry himself doesn't understand about himself, right? Like he doesn't understand that he can speak parcel tongue. He doesn't even really know what that means until Ron and Hermione tell him. Right, because he's just discovering this about himself. Yeah, and so just that pain of being excluded because of something about yourself that you didn't choose and you don't really understand yourself, right? Yeah, I mean, and isn't that so many things as a kid that we experience, (laughs) right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't pick our families. We don't pick even when you're a little, you don't pick your religion, right? Mm. Or some some parents let their kids, but like others don't. You don't pick, you know, what region of a country you're born into. You don't pick what race you're born into, mm-hmm. right? None, none of that is chosen. It's all, it just happens to you. And, yeah. And I mean, and it, then people can judge you just based on that, right? Yeah. Yeah. It definitely feels like the students of Hogwarts are participating in that mild form of uneducated prejudice that can happen <laughs> all it's true easily all too easily to uh, a creature or a, a um a primate with it's only partially rational <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly that's what happens mm. 
So there were also a few things I noticed about Harry in this book that are kind of like detective related. And they're not exactly about his character, but he's like the one around it. So I guess it's kind of two things, two two different examples that make the same point that I think is interesting to talk about. So at the beginning, like the first time the basilisk comes out of the chamber, he brings up the innocuous clues like water on the floor. But then something else happens. There's an action-packed thing. And so I think it's easy to overlook the big thing because it appears to be the small thing, right? True, Um, true. And then it's like when they find out that the quote-unquote person they need to talk to most to discover where the chamber is is Moaning Myrtle, (laughs) right? Who's Uh, just been this. After they've insulted her. Yeah, they've insulted her and like hated her, disliked her company and didn't want anything to do with her and just find her unimpressive. I guess the idea is pay attention to what is close to you, but doesn't seem to be like the big thing. And I mean, this is kind of foreshadowing a future episode we're going to do, because I think we can talk about this a lot more in Stranger Things and and Hopper. The way Hopper operates is just so unbelievably impressive. But just, yeah, like, okay, so really the best clue out of that entire opening sequence when the basilisk comes out, they don't know it's the basilisk. They know it's a monster. The best clue that they could have followed was the water on the floor, right? Because then maybe that leads them to a bathroom. But they didn't even notice, but, yeah. But Harry notices it for like half a second, but then it's like they see Mrs. Norris, there's yelling, and then it's all blame again. Like it's kind of like, well, Harry did this. He talks to snakes kind of thing. Or I can't remember if it was before that or after. But anyway, like it's just, ooh, Harry's in a coincidentally easy place to be a suspect now. And so it kind of like... True. And then and then you build on other things like, oh, and here's another one. Be, he gets so distracted because he's so assured that it's Malfoy. He's so convinced because he doesn't like Malfoy. He's convinced Malfoy is the heir of Slytherin. Yeah. And so he yeah. they go through that whole polyjuice section of the book and they, they have to. And then when it's clear that it's not Malfoy. I mean, I guess as a detective, you'd be like, OK, well, what have I missed along the way? Right. What little thing. Did I not pay attention to? I mean, we even, I, uh, we talked about this when we did True Detective, like how Marty notices the yeah. green on the ears of the drawing and like, why green, right? They focused on the wrong thing. And that's, I guess, the best you can do because it's like easy to focus on things that take your attention more. The best you can do is to be thorough when you're collecting data. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's why uh, data is the future, right? Because mm-hmm. the more... More of it that you can analyze and articulate and synergize. Things change, right? And I mean, that's really what being a detective is, mm-hmm. is, is knowing what data to pay attention to. And really, I think that's going to be a, a big career of the future for humanity itself is, is how are we going to interact with these machines and be helpful? Mm. And I think one of the things that we're discovering is when given lots of data by machines and shown it in certain ways we're pretty good at making decisions Mm -hmm. i mean that's really what we are there's giant decision making machines on top of this like neuro system that sends us data right (laughs) yeah and so i just i'm feeling a little bit of like this well you know the expression i like when expressions feel like they come alive again and they're not just cliches and it's the expression the devil's in the details yes the um this book really made me think of that expression again with new vitality in that the detail of the water 
is the devil they didn't notice because it didn't seem like a devil, right? It didn't True. seem like the thing. When you have, when when you hate Malfoy, when you hate Snape, when you have, you know, Mrs. Norris petrified, when you get Creevy petrified, Justin, Hermione, and that other girl, Penelope, I think, when you have a Chamber of Secrets, when you have a monster, when you feel ostracized, like, all of that is not details in your life, right? Like those are major things, but yeah. water yeah. on the floor is a detail. That's and true. it was the one detail that could have saved them a lot of trouble. Yep. <laughs> if they would yep. have, they, like, presumably they would have found the chamber a lot sooner if they knew to be looking in the bathroom and talking to Myrtle months before they did. It's true. And, you know, they wouldn't have risked the death of those other kids. And so, I don't know. Like, I just, I I don't even know exactly how to make the point other than to say, like, the little things matter in big things happening, right? I just feel like there's a tendency, there's a very easy psychological tendency for people and the world to brush off inconvenient details, <laughs> Yeah, they're not important. They're not interesting. Why do you care about that when this other thing's happening? Well, because details help you find the goddamn basilisk. Well, remember when we were talking recently about life itself, right? And how really what life does is it brings order to chaos, mm. right? Yeah. And one of the things that has to happen to truly bring order to pay, to chaos is you got to pay attention to the details. You can't have a clean house if you don't even pay attention to when things are dirty, mm-hmm. right? Like if, you know, if your mind is distracted by other things, you're not just not going to do that. Mm. And that's a detail, right? And, and there's just a million ways in which that's how life is lived. And how are you going to work on these small details? And I think an additional reason this is really difficult is that it's often it's very easy for the people around the person concerned with the details to get annoyed with the person who's harping on the details. <laughs> yes. Well, right. Exactly. Because exactly. they, they're a stick in the mud. They stand in the way of the more important stuff. Like Ron also hates Malfoy. So why would they bother trying to go down a path that isn't Malfoy based? <laughs> right. Right. We hate right. Malfoy. So why don't we just go get him? Why are you talking about this water on the floor? Like I'm present yeah. uh, presenting the counterfactual world where Harry is more, concerned about that right uh and and i mean i guess as someone who has been a stickler before for the one or two or three things that don't go in the way of an interpretation of something even if there are 50 that do because i can see the valence in the ones that don't and furthermore learning a lot about psychology that has confirmation bias and wants the thing it wants more than it wants the thing it doesn't want by its mm-hmm. own unconscious prejudices, let's say. Yep. It can be easy to be... It, it, it can be quite an, a lonely experience to be committed to every detail about something before you sign the final line on the page, right? No, exactly. I mean, the the problem with that is then it's just harder to go from thing to thing, right? Change becomes terrifying because... All the variables aren't known. Sure, yeah. I mean, that's that's true. I think, I think, it's it just depends on where you place it. I guess, like, uh, in um in per, in your own personal life, maybe 
Well, I don't know. I don't know. Self, I think a lot of a lot of mindfulness is paying attention to the details of your own behavior that you'd rather not pay attention to and trying to um like do i do i um talk down to this group of people in my life when i don't mean to right do i do i talk out of the side of my mouth to this group of friends do i promise them do i promise this group of people more than i actually intend in my heart to keep uh so that it's easier when i see them like i don't know i I think that these little things are the water on the floor that deserve more attention paid to them because like look the end like this could have very easily been the end of harry's life of jenny's life of so many people's lives with that basilisk coming out i i just thought that was great storytelling how yeah um Mm -hmm. once you look back and i mean what these books do that is so great is that they allow you and i'll talk about this a lot more in the third book they allow you to have a lesson without experiencing it yourself so that you can project the ideas in the lesson into the future almost as your own life experiment (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I don't think people realize the um, valuable role that stories play in doing that. They kind of they create the imagined scenario that that may end up happening to you. I often think that's what deja vu is. Mm-hmm. It's our brain a little bit misfiring on thinking that it's remembering something and, and it's not remembering this exact moment. But there's so many familiar details because they've been imagined that you can navigate it. Mm-hmm. I'm leaving this thought a little unfinished, but that's also okay. I don't feel sad about it because I think it's it's an evolving one. But there should be almost a there should almost be an expression for when an expression becomes vital to you again, and not just a cliche. And, uh, true, and true. The, yeah. the devils yeah. in the details really seems to be a lot of how I feel. And I mean, that's kind of I guess in a way that's what I mean when we've talked about like like focusing in onto a better truth right like mm-hmm. that those matrices of okay split into four and then into 16ths and then into 30 seconds and like more and more and more if you just stay at the level of quarters you might be in the right quadrant but you're still not anywhere close to where you'd have to be to be more correct and and then then you got to get more detailed right nah, no exactly so the vaguer things are the less provable they become mm-hmm and so then maybe um, the last little section I have about Harry that I think is interesting is uh, how, and this is, again, great, great, great storytelling for Deathly Hallows, but um, the, the the kind of relatedness that Harry has with Tom, Tom Riddle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, they even mentioned the book that kind of looks similar. Uh, they came from similar backgrounds. Harry feels like being with the Dursleys. He feels kindred to Tom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, yeah, I don't know. What did you think? Like, is well, we know what the payoff for that is at the end of the seventh book. But what did you think of the Tom-Harry dynamic in this one? I think it's interesting also just in that when we read about people or you know, events that remind us of something inside of ourselves, there could really be a bonding moment there, mm-hmm. right? When you really love a character, a character kind of goes with you wherever you go, whether it be a historical character. Like for me, I I just love the idea of people like Napoleon and Julius Caesar, right? 
Mm. And I don't know why, you know, but I was just always been attracted to this, these conquerors, these, you know, men that seemed bigger than life. And maybe in some ways they were. I mean, Napoleon had his own propaganda machine literally in the army that just printed like pro-Napoleonic stuff, right? So, you know, there is an element of the larger than life, but like then their lives became larger than their lives, right? So anyway, my point is we have these familiarities with characters that we just feel this kinship with when we read about them, whether they be historical or fictional. And it's pretty interesting that Rowling figured that out and then is able to portray it in such a unique and interesting way where he feels this affinity and this kinship with ultimately the most evil character in the universe. Mm-hmm. The anti-Harry. Yeah, and I think I just, it's so well done to create that feeling, like to talk in a story about a feeling that we've all experienced. That's why we feel this kinship with Harry is because we too have experienced mm. that connection to a fictional character. And then maybe that fictional character ends up being not that great of a person, mm. right? Or, or you know, never meet your heroes, right? They say that. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, for sure. probably a big reason. <laughs> that applies for... perfectly well to this book. Right, right? <laughs> so yeah. I don't know. You know, I think this dynamic actually is another major factor why I feel like this is almost a perfect book. And it's that one of the themes of Harry's life, it feels like, is that no one quite understands what it's like to be Harry. No. You know, like, in a way that, you know, and and the truth is, in real life, in totality, no one knows what it's like exactly to be somebody else. But the difference with Harry is that he has been kind of a mantle has been forced upon him that isn't his choice. In a sense, the chosen one, right? That motif is quite strong with Harry. He's the one that survived Voldemort's attack, so he's special. Just by, by, you know, Voldemort's not there anymore. Yeah, dint of existence. Yes. And I think Harry, being a child or a young person, doesn't really know how to deal with this. And Ron and Hermione are great, but there's an element of loneliness that I feel from Harry in a lot of the books. You know, he's just kind of, no one can really grasp. Probably the person who comes closest is Dumbledore, but no one can really grasp Harry's plight in life, his existential plight. And I think what's so genius and brilliant about this book is that Rowling gives us someone who could, right? She gives us this Tom Riddle character that could be the like older brother mentor type for Harry. And that's even how Harry kind of, in his unconscious musings, feels about Tom. He's yeah. kind of, he's kind of slowly and un, not on purpose, but inevitably building Tom up on this pedestal, so that by the time that the reveal comes, that was it, Tom Marvalo Riddle, I am Lord Voldemort, which is just great. Oh, yeah, so good. By the time that reveal happens, I think it's a double punch because it's a punch in that oh. It's this layer one punch to to us and to Harry in that, oh, okay, it was a good guy and now it's a bad guy. Punch. Yeah. But also, it's a bad guy who you didn't just think was a good guy, but was going to be like your confidant or your, your, your soul friend in a way, someone who could actually get what it's like to be you. So in that sense, it's almost like a betrayal. I mean, it is. It's a betrayal. It's not just, it's not just a, enemy it's a betrayal 
And so Rowling, from her from the writer's perspective, is giving us the audience and the character this potential. Again, like imagining reading this for the first time, we have this person who could potentially be the actual friend that Harry needs. And now that's not only is that ripped away from him, but it's actually the antithesis of that for him. And it puts him into an even more precarious position yeah, existentially. And I just, I, I don't know, like it, in one, in one sense, that interpretation is quite sad and, and, um, lone and, and further lonely for Harry. But I think in retrospect, in the totality of the Harry Potter universe, this is a crucial lesson for him in, trust i guess and also not putting your faith axiomatically in someone else just because they share your story ultimately ron and hermione's stories are a lot different than harry's and yet that is um the people who stick with him not tom riddle yeah like maybe we don't need to have the same stories as other people maybe 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 we can have our own stories Mm-hmm. And but we can still love one another. Yeah, 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 yeah. I like that. It, I don't know. It just it was so great. It was it, the the symmetry of that, and then the betrayal was um, like Shakespearean, basically. Almost, it felt like you know. That's <laughs> true. It's true. <laughs> Although, again, I think we mentioned last time, it's very clear that J.K. Rowling is quite well read in English literature. <laughs> Well, you would have to be to be able to write that well. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the things from Dumbledore in this book, which because I just um, I was pretty impressed with Dumbledore in this in this particular one. But the first one, so this is going to be something that is um, pretty common sense to you and me. But I think just given at least the tendency of our internet culture right now, it might be worth a riff or two. So on page one hundred nine, it's Filch. Filch basically blames Harry for the petrification of Mrs. Norris, right? Yeah. And I think this is, is this the one where Harry like sees that letter that says that Filch doesn't know how to be a wizard. So he's taking like remedial classes. It's a magazine explaining (laughs) how to do magic because he can't seem to do it. So this is part of why Harry hates, uh, sorry, Filch hates Harry because he thinks Harry wants to embarrass him. And so Filch is blaming and blaming and blaming Harry for all of this. And Dumbledore just says four words that I think are some of the bedrock of um, Western philosophy. And it's innocent until proven guilty. Yeah. Now that deserves a riff. Let's (laughs) let's, we need to modernize that. And I'd say it like this. I don't want (laughs) to, the uh, positive framing of me says like, look, maybe we just don't live in a culture that's been, educated well on the alternatives yeah right like the kind of the enlightenment project that that has become our due process court system in in the western world you know we could talk very easily about the show trials in the soviet union and the, the the regimes around the world that don't even pretend to give a shit about any sort of justice or rights of the person so i don't know why don't we uh, my idea is why don't we give like a kind of shorter but poignant ground up philosophical argument for the innocent until proven guilty thought so i don't know how much you've thought about this in your life from a philosophical point of view or a political point of view but uh take a stab at it so yeah innocent until proven guilty like 
It's a hard one. I find it to be a hard one because there's this thought within that paradigm that they'd, you know, rather a hundred guilty men go free than one innocent man rot in prison, right? Mm -hmm. And I just, I struggle with that. Like, are we really going to let that many criminals just wander? Like, maybe there's a sacrifice that has to be made of a, of a couple innocent people. Talk about like... the utilitarian's nightmare, hey? <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, but individualism, I mean, that's humanism, right? That's individualism. That's objectivism mm -hmm. to a degree that, that controls that narrative. I mean, I guess really because of what we consider to justice to be a foundational Judeo-Christian, but also Athenian... I mean, they talk about this all the way back in Athens and, and the, the like, what is justice? What is the just city? And yeah. a lot of the ancients, though they didn't have the language of psychology, the best people on this were psychologists, but not in name. People who would notice that the tendency of humans to desire that there be someone to punish rather than find for sure the right person to punish like yep. just i mean i don't i'm not a expert on this but didn't scapegoating start as an idea of like putting your sins onto a, a goat and letting it walk out into the <laughs> walk out into the desert or something to die like i think right, i think that's right. the ex beginning of the expression like better to absolve ourselves from our sins and and someone take that punishment than to not in a sense right it's true. And we see this with um, mob mentality. Social psychology is also quite useful in this. Like, the mob doesn't need the right person always. It just needs the person it already wants. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Not one. Yeah. Do you do like you French Revolution? That, like... The mob didn't. The mob didn't need any particular bourgeoisie or or aristocrat. They just needed the one that we already hate. You know? Like, we talked about this in the Crucible. Like, just this the ugly side of human nature to find more and more legitimate reasons to get rid of someone they already don't like to think that that wouldn't also infect a legal system is just naivete on stilts. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so what innocent till proven guilty as an axiom or a category for our legal system at the very least is an attempt to pay homage to and try to mitigate through mass dispersion all of the psychological biases we kind of all know we have at some form or another, right? True, true. And there's the additional reason of innocent till proven guilty that I think, because again, psychologically, which I think a lot of these laws come back to, even if someone I don't like gets punished, if they get punished by a method that I understand is kind of capricious or arbitrary and up to the whim of the mob, of course it could be me one day. Of course right. it could be you one day, right? There's an, there's an element, and there should be an element of enlightened self-interest in innocent till proven guilty. Yeah, <laughs> just in case, right? Kind right. of a just in case situation. True, true. If you are a member of a particularly disliked class or group in a particular society... Then you um, would really want that, of yeah. Of course you want that. That's another thing. Like This, this form of justice protects the minority in a society as much as the majority. Like, that's the whole point of it, is that a mob can't just break out and True. take who they want. Maybe this is a bit controversial, but whatever. Maybe the primary downside of the, of the Me Too movement 
was a dissolution of some of the different categorical differences of harassment to assault, right? And I remember reading articles of, um, of uh, you know, there's so many pieces of shit men out there that if a few innocent ones have to go down with the rest of them, whatever. They've had it coming for years kind of thing. Oh, man, that's true. They do. And so, like, again, I... <laughs> feels weird to say it like i think the men who abuse their power in a sexual manner or any manner but certainly in a sexual one with women are just pieces of shit those people yeah. are pe- those people are pieces of shit but there's a lot of male especially male female relations that are messy and not great communicate not not well communicated and not no ill will that don't end well that aren't done by people who are pieces of shit they're just done by people who maybe are socially awkward or stupid or learning still, right? And so True. to have the same punishment for everybody, regardless of the malfeasance, is, uh, well, I mean, Beccaria noticed this. Like, there's no point in torturing people because they're just going to say whatever you want. You don't learn anything. Plus, <laughs> plus, also, if the punishment is the same for a, a theft as a murder, you might as well murder because you might as well, you have a better chance of getting away with it. True, true. There's almost a fundamental lack of knowledge in our culture about where our culture came from in you know, so many of its axioms, especially Nobody, legally. Nobody's talking about it anymore. That's a problem. Yeah, so I just... Um, innocent till proven guilty is a way of ensuring that as best as we can, no innocent people hang and we don't cheat to get people we don't like right yeah exactly like like this is why we have concepts around um can't tamper with evidence you can't plant evidence like a cop can't plant evidence on someone even if they know they're guilty right and it makes it makes for great moral fodder in tv shows a lot of the time like if a cop knows someone is guilty what are they willing to do to to prove it right true true And, and i just Again, what I call the liberal tendency, and he's like, no, you got to do the more hard work to get it. You do. So, yeah, I think if you want to hear more about the psychology around this stuff, you should listen to our episode on the crucible, because so much of what we talk about in that episode is about the the bias towards just punishing people we don't like for one reason or another, because humans are only a partially rational species. (laughs) Yep, yep. Maybe the hard part is, is it just a straight up rub of values? Like you would get a lot of guilty people if you had a dragnet over that got some innocent too. But why, like our, I, basically all I can say is like, I think that's a worse world to live in for everybody. Yeah. Because yep. it keeps, I'd rather have guilty people looking over their shoulder than innocent ones. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I, no, I think you're making a good point. I like, I like, even I haven't thought about it this way, and I feel like I think about law and the rule of law a lot. But you're making some very good points on why this is an important cornerstone of it. Uh, well, thanks, David. That's really <laughs> kind. Well, okay, look, I this is important. So I think we, if we have the innocent till proven guilty, like, like imagine a world. This is a thought experiment. Like, imagine a world where. Mistakes weren't made, which I know brackets off a lot, but this, yep. this is yep. to like 
get at the ideal. In a world with robots where the innocent is proven guilty, the only people who are going to look over their shoulders are guilty people, right? Um, yeah. Innocent people aren't going to worry about that for, for the laws that we have on the books. Again, assuming the laws are just and <laughs> I'm assuming a lot here. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But that's right. okay. Whereas if you have guilty if we want or not innocent till proven guilty, like uh, you have to prove your innocence, right? Guilty till proven innocent. Yeah. Then, yeah. Then both the guilty and the innocent would look over their shoulders in fear sometimes if a, someone's there, right? And again, like that is what the Soviet Union was. That's what a lot of Maoist China was, was uh, we'll make up a charge, whatever, we, you are you are a high status person in this town and we need a scapegoat for something well we'll just make something up post hoc we'll arrest you <laughs> we'll arrest you just, before we even know why we're just coming for you yeah cuz yeah. we just need to take care of this problem yeah so the guilty the guilty till proven innocent or i mean i guess in the soviet union be more like guilty without a chance of innocence but even guilty till proven innocent that's that's like how kafka made his career as a writer <laughs> like, that's why we know the name kafka is because he was True. dealing with people like that and i just i don't know it's a it's a moral axiom that i think we need to understand better yeah we need to be talking about it more yeah right like why isn't justice as an idea in every high school curriculum like why, I don't know. Why That's aren't 17-year-olds having to wrestle with some of these really difficult thought experiments about how we would want people in our society treated based on the imperfect knowledge that human beings have? It's true. You know? So maybe it's a PSA. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So... Uh. No. As, as I'm Good sure point. listeners can tell, we have our own opinions, but yeah, like, I just... It blows my mind that someone who would self-identify as a liberal can't just be totally interested in the Enlightenment. <laughs> you know, yeah. like the Enlightenment, especially as it was codified into laws, has made the world safer for the vast majority of humanity that has lived under societies that operate under that again, imperfectly, and I know that there are thousands and thousands of examples that go contrary to that. But the fact that we'd even have these aspirations written down as something to fail to, right? Like, that's what's different, is that we have a justice system that you can very clearly point out when it's failed, or you do your best to, right? Yeah. It demarcates itself better. So, anyway. And I mean, Dumbledore the moral titan of the Harry Potter universe, Dumbledore, innocent till proven guilty. So obviously it's, it's, it's enshrining, you know, it's almost like she was trying to teach people all of these values in fictional form. I'm starting to think that like she might've been trying to preserve certain values. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of actual, what I would classify as classic enlightenment values in the Harry Potter stories. Yeah. Both both yeah, there is. both legal and existential and social. So three. At least. Yeah. Right? That's one of the reasons it's so powerful to people is because a lot of the uh, I mean, this we could make this a symposium on the Enlightenment, I guess, but a lot of the stuff, the best stuff about written about the Enlightenment. I'm not talking about the French Revolution. I'm not talking about reason as goddess, you know, its own platonic form. Yeah. I'm talking about yeah. ground up Thomas Paine style 
Benjamin Franklin style enlightenment of science and thinking and and grace and a kind of cos like a cosmic humility <laughs> even of our own understanding. You'd um, say that that comes from the Enlightenment, eh? No, I don't think it comes from the Enlightenment. I think it is best articulated through Enlightenment writers, especially codified through laws. I think right, the I think right. the Enlightenment, especially the American and the British one, upstaged so much of the dogmatic sides of society utilizing all of the best things that were out there for them to talk about, which included secular things and included religious things. And it was just their writings. I think the the writers of the Enlightenment did the best job of articulating all of the best ideas thus far into history into a way that could be comprehended by the most people. True. So. And, you know, is. I mean, a lot more freedom for... The masses since the 1700s of mass technological advance than we are experiencing right now. You know, mm. there's not. I mean, this is why I love Peter Thiel's book uh, Zero to One, right? Where he mm. where he just yeah. lays out how, you know, if you're in the one category, it's something people already know, are already living with, already experienced. So so just iteratively doing that better. But he's like zero to one is completely different. Mm -hmm. Like creating something from nothing that's kind of what the enlightenment did with law mm -hmm. exactly and again i always i feel like i often get to the point where i might be speaking a little out of my depth and so i don't want to claim more of my knowledge than i actually have but yeah i mean there's something there was something in the water of scotland and england in the 17th century and a lot of america in the 18th century that was that was better. There's just something better in that philosophy for most people. And you know what What troubles me is that we're now in a place as a society where we can't say that one idea is better than another one because that's quote unquote racist. And I'm like, there's some pretty solid ideas that people have come up with that have made life better. Mm -hmm. uh, why can't we just say that? Why, why does it have to be racist to say that ideas are not, you know, race-based? An no. idea is is a human construct well, this that is can the, be communicated. This is the great point Sam Harris makes, is that uh, there's no such thing as Christian physics, though the Christians no. discovered the laws of physics. And there's yes. no such thing as Muslim algebra, even though the Muslims discovered algebra. <laughs> Yeah, right? nobody calls it Muslim or you know Muslim algebra. It's right? just algebra. Yeah, right. Maybe the rule of law is a pretty damn good idea. Yeah, of course. Just in the way that, like, to not make this um, Western centric for a second, like I think that there are a lot of deep human truths that can be discovered if you talk about Buddhism. Oh, I think, I, yeah. I think I that there's 100%. some really interesting insights into the human condition obviously that have come totally out of and you know what i like East. about it it's totally different insights yeah that are so significant but to whatever extent the buddhist tradition has interesting things to say about the mind and breathing even and concentration once those get better understood it'd be crazy to say chinese mindfulness right <laughs> or or uh, right. or japanese right. breathing when it comes to the way that we understand these things about how they affect humans, right? I mean, 
again, I think I think the reason why you point to why ideas. I mean, I guess maybe there are just some people in the world that can't understand that ideas can transcend the temporal, right? Right. <laughs> the the spatial temporal visual. Never mind the people who maybe have incentive to not have things transcend that. But just abstract thinking is not easy. It really isn't, right? No. So I think um, that's part of the challenge of the Enlightenment and the Enlightenment project that I think is ongoing. So I don't, I don't actually, when I talk about the Enlightenment, I don't actually, like, there's the one sense you could use the term in like, oh, the, uh, the 17th and 18th century. But I think the Enlightenment project is ongoing, spreading human knowledge and human compassion as much as possible to as many people as possible. One of the saddest things about the Enlightenment project at the beginning of the United States is how they didn't extend it as far as they could have. True. Right? They didn't live up to their own ideals. But what other ideals would we have? This is the thing. Like, what what do you propose? I, I guess this would be a challenge. I just, I a challenge like to... People, yeah, to start proposing. A challenge something. to someone who might disagree with you or I on our take on the Enlightenment and liberal, what I call liberal values would be, okay, well, what do you propose in its stead? Right? What, what kind of um, counter constitution would be better. Yeah. Right? What would be better than what we have around something like a Bill of Rights and a Constitution? Being as you and I are aspiring open-minded thinkers, we could take on board any good faith objections that... uh, But again, it would take the rigor and perhaps even annoyingly, the details. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Never let the details get in the the way of a good ideology, right, David? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, our, I think all ideologies require a kind of a a vagary, mm. if you know what I mean. Totally, but I mean, this is this is what's so enlightening to listening to Jordan Peterson talk about the Soviet Union, where it was like, okay, there are actually hundreds, if not thousands, of different ways to evaluate another person based on an identity marker, and if even one of them was thought as borderline bourgeoisie, you were a bourgeoisie in total, and then therefore fit for the gulag. Right? right. So maybe maybe you don't have lots of money, maybe you're not super wealthy, like maybe you don't have land, maybe you don't have status-oriented family members, but maybe you do have that one great uncle who one time served in that one counts or or whatever the Russian gentry would have been called, right? right. And then right. Oh, and then at least we have a suspicion of you of like you haven't you have an element of your identity that could be bourgeoisie and that's good enough for us. <laughs> True. We're taking you out. Yeah. So innocent until proven guilty. Thank you Dumbledore. Thank you Dumbledore. So, Dumbledore's this was a beautiful line. On page 195. Uh, so this is when they're, Ron and Harry are hiding under the invisibility cloak in Hagrid's hut. Yeah. And yep. Dumbledore doesn't know they're there, but he, at a deeper level, he definitely knows that they're there. And he says, <laughs> um, I will only have truly left this school when none are loyal to me. And this is when Malfoy's dad is saying that Dumbledore is being removed because he... Uh, he couldn't protect the school when the chamber of secrets was opened. Yeah. And so this like idea left me with the motif of um, like actually maintaining the vision of someone who 
has the right idea about something. If that makes sense. Hmm. I mean, the end of the book, Harry reminds Tom Riddle that he's still loyal to Dumbledore, which is how the phoenix comes with the hat and the sword, right? True, true. So you can say in the Harry Potter world, there was a connection there. But I think, I don't know, like I'm just thinking about this outside of it as a as a kind of motif is um, like Dumbledore has a particular vision for the school that many other teachers don't understand or even agree with but it's always deeper than they can know. And so... True, true. I don't know. Like, I'm I'm wondering if this is like a, a, at least a flirting of an idea of how to be the right kind of apostle for someone. To carry on the legacy, maybe. Yeah, because we can't all be the prophets. Some of us have to be the guys who record the, what the prophets wrote. Some of us have to be the guys who taught other people about what the prophets wrote. Like, <laughs> and who are our prophets? Right. right. And in this case, Dumbledore. Like, I mean, for you, I know Hitchens, Sam Harris. Like, you have uh, Thomas Paine. Uh, you know, Emerson. Mm. You would. You're kind of like a you know apostle of those men, right? Mm. Well, and I, 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 you know, put put some of those guys and some of my own in mind, but uh, like I'm definitely an apostle for, for freaking Elon Musk. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Am I <laughs> talking about him and saying how great he is and what he's doing is amazing. Right. But I think the important point is that because Dumbledore phrases it as loyal in, so it's a virtue. I think it's, it's, it's at a level that's beyond just mere because Dumbledore said so like, I'm interpreting loyal in this time as loyal, not just to Dumbledore as a person or, or as a wizard, but Dumbledore's as an idea. Like, what is the idea of Dumbledore? And it's something like innocent till proven guilty. It's something like we're going to hear everybody out before we make a decision. It's something like we don't come to rash decisions because based on our emotions right now. It's something like because Dumbledore's the only other character that says the name Voldemort. We pay attention to the deepest evils of the universe and we figure out a way to stand up to them. Yeah. Right? So all of these things are what Dumbledore is. And so that's, I think that is what uh, Harry is being asked to stay loyal to in a way that probably Dumbledore learned all of this stuff from somebody else. Uh, really Which makes sense, important. right? I mean, that's yeah. one of the beauties of beautiful things about being alive, mm-hmm. I think. And I hope for at least some of our listeners, that that's what this podcast is. For me, it's it's that very much. Luke was always reminding me of, of you know, the principles that should make up an enlightened life. And I <laughs> well, hope that, you know... I, I don't remind- know about the word always. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, <laughs> On maybe. occasion, he is. On occasion, it's true. Yeah. Um, but, no, I, uh, I hope that this all becomes that for you guys. Like uh, mm. I've, I've been listening to Eric Weinstein's podcast a little bit over the last couple of days uh, while I'm working. And I can't get over the fact that like he's built a community of people who love the things that he loves and he's a quirky guy. And I keep thinking, you know what? Luke and I've done that too. <laughs> and yeah, I love his sense of humor. And, and so like maybe in the sense we're, you know, we all become people who enjoy talking about things and in that talking about what really matters, maybe something comes out of it. Yeah. And I mean, I think I've, uh, that's a great sentiment and I really agree with it. I, I think I mentioned on one other podcast too, something I call echoes through the ages, right? When you get revitalized by reading a book from someone in history that uh, really talks about how they 
talks about things that make you feel the same thing or you feel yeah. the same thing and someone else has brought up. And I just, I don't know, like being loyal to all of the best parts of Dumbledore is what saves Harry. And as opposed to, you know, there seems to be like a lot of other people at Hogwarts who would prefer their own way. And you got to think like no, nobody else prepares Harry to meet Voldemort like Dumbledore does. No. Right? There's no other no. character in the book that could have made it possible for Harry to confront Voldemort than Dumbledore. And I just think that that is worth remembering throughout the entire run of the books for all of the, like Dumbledore is in this way less than I remember or, or thought I he know. was, right? Like he's, I know he's in I the know. books way less. And it, and that makes every time he is in the book so powerful, so exactly. powerful. Exactly. The last little thing is uh, the East of Eden moment that Dumbledore has. Cause Harry, at the end of the book, Harry is um, whinging and saying that he, he's, he knows he's in Gryffindor, but he's really, he wanted to be in Gryffindor and the hat almost put him in Slytherin. And he's really having like a lot of, I don't know. He's really worried about that, right? Like he's, it's, yeah. it's concerned him a great deal throughout the book. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> and I, I love this line that Dumbledore says like, well, you should be very happy, Harry. You, you, because you got what you chose, not what was ascribed to you. And then he says, is our choices, Harry, that show what we truly are far more than our abilities. <laughs> oh yeah and uh yeah like uh, just that total reframing for a young person like because harry is so worried that his talent his fact that he's a parcel tongue the fact that he looked like tom riddle the fact that the hat originally said mm, maybe slytherin he's worried that it's kind of his destiny to be this way and and dumbledore points out well don't you realize harry you've already defeated that by choosing yeah, gryffindor you made a choice it's done <laughs> yeah you uh, wanted something different, which means I you really can rise above that. it. And actually, I want to linger on this for a second because I have um I've noticed it's happened a few times in compliments of this podcast specifically, but also just talking to people like the appreciation that people have given about when we can talk about there being choice in life. I think yeah. it's really easy like when we ascribe the ability for other people to choose, it's actually quite flattering and respectful. But it's true. I mean, that's really what life is. It's no, I know choosing. that. I know that. But it's like easy to muse on like the way people are, right? The, amorph right. the amorphous true. other. Humans are X. Humans are Y. We know this from social psychology. And of course, I talk like this sometimes too. I'm aware of that fact. But why even have a podcast if you didn't think you could affect the way other people thought? <laughs> why why even write books if you didn't think you could affect the way people... Why have anything artistic in the world at all if you thought human cognition was destined for yeah. something anyway, right? Yeah. To put it in Harry Potter terms from Chamber of Secrets... Why even have, I mean, the sorting hat makes this a little bit weird to think about because the sorting hat like does destine people, but it kind of reads their minds, I think too, right? And reads their virtues. But I guess in theory, Harry proved anyone could just say, please this one and they'd put them in that one. I don't know. I guess, right? like, who knows? Maybe, maybe just the wanting of something tells a person enough about their character, right? Mm -hmm. But like, if Slytherins are as talented as they're supposed to be, why even have them go to class? 
<laughs> right? Like, what's the point of education if you're already going to be a genius, ah, right? Or an idiot. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I just, I think that there's a, a tendency, here I go saying about people, there is something <laughs> in the human personality that kind of assumes a fatalism, I think. It often is allows for the status quo to be maintained, whereas the team shell East of Eden slash, I guess we have to say, Dumbledorean perspective now is, well, the fact that you made a choice is all the difference in the world, Harry. And not only that, the fact that you made a choice says you have a choice. Yeah. And and the fact that we even live in a world that, okay, I'll use the term metaphysically, allows for us to have choices. Right. To me, changes the entire paradigm of art, communication, togetherness politics even maybe this is a nadir of politics in the world but it doesn't mean there isn't a chance of improvement (laughs) you know true true so true yeah i like that that was so beautiful in dumbledore so yeah so i think that's going to bring us into gilderoy lockhart the world's worst person (laughs) i hated this guy certainly the world's most uh, pretentious person Everything I know, and again, I know this is a person, everything about him I hated. There wasn't a single thing I liked about him. I was wondering, do you think that there's people who do like him? Uh, there can't be. Anyone who legitimately would like him wouldn't read Harry Potter. Because everything else in Harry Potter is like anti him. True. So, yeah, if you read Harry Potter with Lockhart as the hero, everybody else is horrible and they win. (laughs) (laughs) It would be a sad tale. It'd be intolerable. (laughs) But like, okay, here's the thing. On page 71, Lockhart imagines Harry did the car stunt just to get famous because he couldn't imagine a motivation in another person that isn't his own. Right. Talk about my op- being myopic, right? It, like he could he can't it's impossible for him to see Harry or Ron, I mean Harry especially, as wanting anything other than what he wants. So he pigeonholes Harry, which immediately makes it impossible for him to have a broader sense of things. Yep. That's true. And then the thing is, when you set yourself up like that, you are so easily taken advantage of because I love that scene where he gets flattered by Hermione just so she can get a book out of the restricted section. (laughs) Yep. And the deeper point on this would be like, you can never be sure. Like if you set up your life in this way, can't be sure if it's sincerity you value or if it's the image of the allure, right? So any nice thing anyone actually says to you. I mean, it wouldn't matter, I guess, to someone like Lockhart because he lives his entire life in the facade anyway. Yeah. But even having that as an aspiration means you can be taken advantage of, like Hermione takes advantage of him. And she really does take advantage of him. Yeah, like maybe he's just so basic that there's... Okay, but here's his... um, Maybe this is how you beat this mentality in the world. When they find out... I can't remember. I guess it's when they find out where the chamber is, maybe, or or what to do about it. I love the part where Snape calls out Lockhart. (laughs) Yep. So he calls him out on his bravado just by emphasizing what he always says about himself. Um, And so I wrote, the Lockharts are always found out in the end. So Snape, (laughs) it's really funny, actually. Snape is able to out Lockhart or, or show him for what he really is 
by just giving him the opportunity f- to actually do all the things he brags about doing. Yeah. And he can't <laughs> do any of them. And I think that there's something powerful in that message in terms of sometimes the best way, well, I would say probably the best way to show the true colors of an insincere person or an insincere organization is to find a scenario where they should be doing what they say they should be doing and saying, okay, go do it now. Yep. Make manifest your words. (laughs) It's true. And so, I don't know. Was there anything else about Lockhart? Well, I was thinking about why you hate him so much. And I was like, (laughs) because Luke really hates people who are not serious about their place in reality, right? Mm. And I feel like in his case, he he he's not being serious about the temporal nature of life. He's not being serious about... There's no humility there at all. Mm-hmm. And when you don't have any humility, you lose the gra- your grasp with reality. It's like the entire world for Lockhart is an image, right? Everything yeah. is image. Everything is perception. Everything is what he says it is in his book. I mean, that scene is so awesome and revealing where he talks about how he just stole, he's a, he plagiarized everything, right? He stole, yeah. he stole the story from all these other witches and wizards who actually did it, <laughs> neuralized them or whatever the uh, charm is he uses to um, make it so they can't remember, and then tells it as his own story. So it's just straight up theft of the story. Yeah. And, He's doing it so that he can self-aggrandize. And because really, he's just terribly insecure. It's both so cynical and so selfish in one fell swoop that it's just like, um, yeah, it feels like <laughs> Rowling made Lockhart as the villain to be most hated by people like me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It really people does. Like you. <laughs> and he's so I, wasn't, I didn't have a particular hatred just more of an annoyance but he's i guess it's because he's so one-dimensional that it's hard to like once you notice the bad thing about him you've noticed the bad thing about him right? <laughs> and it's the, it's the only thing he ever does right? and in the movie actually I, he's portrayed by kenneth brana the actor who does a great job and you just like oh it's visceral because in the more broader scope of the story he is such a distraction unto liability for the safety of the people in hogwarts right right so he's not just in the best of times he's a hollow nothing but when the rubber Mm. meets the road he's a liability he actually makes it harder and more dangerous for people because it's not even that he's inept and honest about it he's inept and braggadocious about it in in the opposite so like don't don't be going around saying you can do things you can't do because there might come up a situation <laughs> where you got to do it and you won't be able to do it. Kind of like in the last episode we talked about how Dudley is a total liability in a crisis. Well, so yeah. is Lockhart. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And on top of that, I guess maybe this is another reason why you noticed I would dislike him. I think it's on page 200. Uh Lockhart says to the boys, "Don't you realize Fudge wouldn't have taken Hagrid if Hagrid wasn't guilty?" Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, Lockhart, you got the cause and effect directly backwards there, my friend. And so Lockhart <laughs> is also 
in a way, the propagandist. His life is propaganda. There's a huge disconnect between how he presents himself and how he actually is. And I get, I think like the tragedy in that kind of ner- in that arc is that you'll never get away with it. No. Every phony is found out eventually. If nothing else, you'll make enough enemies where they have to find it, <laughs> right? And and exactly. it's not even like Lockhart is so careless about it and cavalier that to be found out, all Snape has to do is talk to him, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but then even like on that deeper point, why would Fudge take him if he wasn't guilty? Like that's just a that's just a again that's an assumption of. It's, it's just a juvenile assumption on Lockhart's part where he's he's like, well, uh, why would why would Fudge present something that isn't true? It's almost like he's believed his own lies to the point that he can believe other people's lies. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> you know? Or he's because just if susceptible other, to lies. If other people aren't telling the truth and he has to hold them to that, it brings down his house of cards too, right? So I exactly. think I wouldn't be surprised if there's a psychological correlation between someone who relies on propaganda and someone who has a bad conscience. Uh, oh, I think that there's never thought of it that way. I think that there's probably a correlation there. It'd be interesting to talk to anyone who's studied that psychologically. But well, I know that there's uh, in Russia, if you want to get beyond a certain point mm-hmm. in their like kind of upper class business, whatever it is, CEO, government, whatever it is. Right. You have to go and do something bad, like receive a bribe or whatever. So they have dirt on you because they don't trust you unless they have dirt on you. Oh, that's so funny. (laughs) Right. So, I mean, oh, yeah, I know. I know we talked um, last episode foundation. We talked about um, the movie, the death of Stalin. And it's not quite that that bad in the movie but just how these guys these upper ministers are are able to change their conviction on a dime right yeah she was a enemy of the people well she's free now that we wrongly convicted <laughs> like, <laughs> just, like it's just in the best way that Brit- the british humor can do it it makes it it makes it's like a very monty python-esque type of movie about yeah. the Russian leadership, right? And the best part is you really don't have to parody it that hard. <laughs> no, no, you don't. So yeah, I, I think the manifest inauthenticity of Lockhart is, again, you and I can see right through it because we're adults and we've been well conditioned and, and instructed in the world. But I guess it's really useful if if you think about it, if you're like 11 or 12 reading this book she does it like Rowling does a good job of showing why Lockhart ultimately becomes completely unattractive and I think everyone not everyone but we can kind of all understand the idea of like the allure of celebrity right and the allure of fame I just really love that this portrayal of a famous person shows the difference between having fame for its own sake versus being known or having renown maybe right like i think i think it'd be useful to make a distinction between fame and renown where yeah fame is like just i mean uh i don't know kim kardashian and paris hilton are famous whereas meryl streep and helen mirren have renown <laughs> yes <laughs> let's say true. right and if you can't figure out with those two examples, the difference, I cannot help you. 
(laughs) (laughs) So anyway, we don't have to talk about this very long, but I thought it was a useful thing to bring up because I think we mentioned it earlier, but there's a line when the minister Fudge has to come and arrest Hagrid because of Hagrid's connection previous to the Chamber of Secrets. On arresting Hagrid, he says, I've got to do something. And it's better, better, basically the implication there is it's better Hagrid than no suspect. What's more important is the perception of being doing something as the government rather than the actual doing of a thing. Right. And I think seen to do something is more important than actually doing it. And I think that this is this is a nice tie into some stuff we've talked about earlier is that, well, no, actually, the antidote to that is that because injustice hangs in the balance, this is exactly why we need details and we need due process. Right? No. Because there are hidden motivations for political reasons to just find a suspect. Haven't you found a suspect yet? Well, populace, wrong question. (laughs) Do you have a suspect that's worth considering yet? (laughs) Yeah. You know? Yeah. Just like, oh, I don't know. I won't get into that. Appeasing a mob. It's too hard on my. It's too hard on my soul. Not right now. Not okay, right here's now. a little thing that I thought was interesting because I think it's just it's, it's a minor point, but it's worth making. So really early in the book, Harry is cooking eggs in the Dursleys' kitchen, and uh, I don't know, Uncle Vernon or Dudley says something like, "Bring me my food," and uh, Harry says, "Well, what's the magic word?" Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And then of course the whole family freezes in terror because the mere mention of the word magic makes is, them is horrified, horrified even though clearly in context, uh, Harry is referring to the word please, like just say please. <laughs> mm-hmm. Everyone, all, the reader obviously knows that, so the disconnect is funny, but the, the serious point to be made there is that, now it's the Dursleys, so it's understandable, but they're not willing to hear a charitable interpretation of the intent behind Harry's use of the word magic, right? No. Like Harry, they don't even give Harry a chance to say, no, I meant say please, just say please. Now, the Dursleys would have been shits. But again, the deeper point here is like intent and context really matter. And to just assume an uncharitable interpretation of a word because it suits you in some way or, or just because you're not wanting to think about it is just so damaging. There's just no extension of the principle of charity from the Dursleys towards Harry in this instance. They're just filled with terror all the time. But like... His intent is meaningless to him, uh, to them, right? Yep, yep. And I'm sure you've heard in the modern age this, I don't know, mantra, I guess, of like, what matters is impact, not intent. Yep. And I just think that that is such a, it's such a childish way to think about the world and, and such a infantile way of understanding the complexities of human communication. It's true. You know, it's like, Obviously, Harry intended them to just be polite. He wasn't trying to, like, threaten them in a, like, mobster, <laughs> you know gangster what? way. It also, ex- it also exposes their psychological position, right? Where they would be using it as a threat because everything they measure is, like, that's power games. That's how the Dursleys think about things, right? I'm not going to let you do this. I'm not going to let you do that. They're always thinking about how they can hurt Harry. That's just how their minds work. Right, mm, that's an interesting. And point. So they probably just project that onto Harry and think that he's the same way, and that's why they're terrified of him because mm. they can't have any power or influence. And you know, there's that whole scene that's set up where you know the family is coming over and they want to impress them 
during the meal because they want a promotion. They want something from them, so they want to impress them of what a great family they are. It's all a facade, right? Mm-hmm. And for the Dursleys, that's how they communicate with little spiked comments. But you know what? I, one of the things I've realized in life is you can let people have their little spiked comments, but if you don't let them affect you mentally, then that other person is just, you know, kind of wasting their time. Mm-hmm. But the Dursleys can't understand that they they because they think so much in this attack, defend, power, dynamic mindset that they're consumed by things that don't matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the Dursleys are very much impact over intent type of people for their own selves, right? It's true. Right? Like they, it's true. And it's interesting. You're right. That's a good point. Like a lot of the villains in the Harry Potter universe they project their own desires or motivations onto people like Harry, which makes them not be able to understand him, which is part of their downfall, really. I think, like, look, I'm not advocating throw impact. Don't just go around saying things to be inflammatory and like hurt other people's feelings or say things that are intentionally going to be having negative impact on people, right? Like, that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, that's that's tact. That's good manners. But right. understanding that it's going to happen anyway through accident and faux pas and miscommunication. Yeah, <laughs> and exactly. and, th- and when that happens, intent is the most relevant thing because otherwise you can choose to interpret Harry as threatening you if you're the Dursleys, or you can choose to understand that he was just referencing a common idiom in the language and it's it's a nothing burger right (laughs) exactly if you and this is what i'm saying about like a mature lens on other people's minds allows you to understand that a lot of things that impact you are actually just nothing burgers and they're and it's all in your own head yeah and it's an opportunity cost of your own you know what's that expression like letting people live in your head rent free yeah, I love that one. Well, if I you make impact one. more important than intent, you're letting everyone who talks ever live in your head rent free. Like I just can't <laughs> I just can't imagine wanting that. That just seems like a horrible way to live. Yeah. I mean, I agree. In generation me, maybe this is the maybe the best message you can give to generation look at me is uh is no one wants to look at you, so stop <laughs> taking it so personally all the time. Nobody's looking at you. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're not that interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it. again, it's just, that's a soapbox. I think I think that there's an important philosophical distinction to be made of the, of the importance of intent over impact because anyone can choose to have anything impact them, anything they want, and then just use that for its lowest motive. We're... we're as a society, we're captive to people's lowest motives if we preferentiate impact over intent. That's how I would True. put it. And, and that sounds intolerable. I don't want to live in that world. And yet, at the same time, I can call out anyone who's intentionally inflammatory and trying to hurt someone else and or trying to be cruel, right? If you blur every line between an accident of language and the intention to be cruel, you've made the entirety of the thing meaningless anyway so yeah because because how is someone like cruelty is a a real thing and it's a problem yeah 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 yeah. let's see i like the part where fred talks about the muggle trick where they learned how to pick locks 
because it made me think of knowing the value of what came before you in all realms, not just your own. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You notice that all of the, well, and Ron even has the line, if we hadn't married muggles, we'd have died out. You know, in, intermingling of I love that of line. Goodwill. I was thinking about that line too. Yeah, goodwill and good faith, right? Like the all of the best wizards, like our heroes, understand the importance of muggles and and of including them. And and this is important, learning from them. Yes. Right? Because the muggles have important lessons to teach. And it's such a great contrast to the um, superiorism shown by the Malfoys in the book. So you contrast those attitudes, right, of the Weasleys, who are heroic, to Draco calling Hermione a mudblood. Did any part of that book strike you in any new and unique way? The the wizard, mudblood, muggle, trifecta? I don't know. I, I feel like... It's an older thought, right? Mm. Like, I think there's bigger, more important things to care about these days. Yeah, maybe. Maybe you're right. Like, I'm more interested in in Harry's, you know, individual quest to understand and live with this idea of destiny than I am about, like, oppression, I think. Yeah, 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 I agree. It's 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 a much deeper and more vital aspect of the book, but I'd phrase it like this then. I, I was really, I loved that the three Weasleys are all purebloods <laughs> from the wizarding point of view, and yet they are Kind very, of the most attacked. Yeah, they're attacked, but they're also very aware of the importance of muggles, right? Like Fred yes. and George learn how to pick locks because of muggles. And Ron points out that that wizards would have gone extinct without muggles. They had to intermarry. And yes, and it's like in the Harry Potter world, it seems like a huge gap between muggles and wizards and muggles and witches. But the wizards themselves, at least the good ones, say, no, it's a, such a superficial difference. And we actually have so much more in common. And you, like, obviously, Harry would have way more in common with Hermione than he does with Draco. Or or yeah. Ron with Draco, and that and yet, so it's like this arbitrary like. If you look at it from Draco and Lucius's point of view, they're like, "Oh, okay, we are uh, a priori, which means before the like before experience, we're in this group, and so are you. So we must be joined, and we must exclude this other group, which is like, you know, every bigot ever. <laughs> yeah, is is that yeah. attitude, and yet. That's not the attitude of our heroes. And I think that there's just something really, really, really deeply vital in that observation. And then it's extended because Rowling is so good at this shit. It's extended even further in Draco's case because we're basically led to believe that he's abused by his dad and indoctrinated by his dad. So it's like, how much choice does Draco have himself in all of this? And it makes it, well, difficult to know what the answer to that is, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess we can talk a lot more about Draco and his actual th- views in later books. I think he reveals them more, but I just thought it was so interesting. Like, the mud blood, just the slur, even, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> like, um, in a book so chock full of important life lessons, why not also include bigotry and slurs? Yeah, don't, <laughs> don't be a racist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's good, it's good. Yeah. So... Just the last note, which I think is important. The climax of this book is mind-blowingly good. It's so good. 
So I'm just going to lay it all out on the table for us to talk about whatever we want about it. But the Basilisk, the Phoenix, the Phoenix Tears, the Sword of Gryffindor, destroying the book with the Fang, saving Ginny, all of that. Just brilliant. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And I love, even before that, like how much mythos is in these books, right? Like how Colin and Justin and Hermione and Penelope are all, why, how do they all survive the basilisk, which turns you to stone and kills you if you look at it? Well, they all see it through a reflective way, right? Like yep. Colin through the camera, Justin through nearly headless Nick, and then mirrors with Hermione and Penelope. And it just is a total take on the Medusa story. Medusa is a serpent. She kills people by, she kills men by turning them to stone by looking at them. How does Perseus kill her? By looking at the reflection in the shield and not looking yep. directly at her, right? Yep. So it's like there's a mythical, there's a deeply mythical motif going on. So yeah, like the end of this book, how does it make you feel? Uh, it just makes me feel like someone else appreciates stories as much as I do. Mm. I like that. Yeah, it's like a it's a it's an homage to to the myths, and I, and I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, just how both the basilisk and the phoenix are deep in time from storytelling, hey? Yeah, like exactly. The, the the predator that turns you to stone. I mean, there's evolutionary and biological factors in that story of like snakes being such an uncanny predator that they turn you to stone because you like yeah. like snakes are such a unique predator to humans as compared to like the big cats or the big dogs or even eagles or big birds, just cause they like, they slither around. There's like, yeah, it's hard to appreciate weird. their movements. We don't really have an intuition for their physics. And so we freeze, right? It's that freezing. But then the Phoenix being the idea of it, it ri- like it rises from the ashes when it dies, you know? And, True. and, and it's, it's what saves Harry because, I don't know. It just it, it once you die, it it saves you, and it's like as a metaphor, it comes from Dumbledore. So it's the memory of Dumbledore that saves Harry, and using and then using the sword of Gryffindor. So the sword of his actual house. It's that tension between is he Slytherin, is he Gryffindor? Well, he uses the symbol of Gryffindor to kill the symbol of Slytherin in the end, and then he uses the monster that Tom Riddle is trying to use against him. He uses a fang of that monster to kill the memory of Tom Riddle. Like it's just so perfectly self-referential <laughs> in in every single aspect. Hey, it's true, it's true. And it's even the hat that has the sword of Gryffindor <laughs> in it, which originally was going to put him in Slytherin, but then he chose to go to Gryffindor. In you know, it's like <laughs> there's a, yeah, the, it's it's just like a callback, callback, callback. This is why I'm saying this is almost a perfect book. Like the, the I don't know the climax. I wish I knew more about myth and history than I do because I feel like, especially with the Phoenix, there's more to it than I can glean into. Yeah, the but, Phoenix I think also has to do with alchemy, from what I've been told. Oh, okay, like turning into gold. Well, I mean, like the idea of alchemy being that the alchemist can turn lead into gold, but that's a metaphor, right? right? right. Turning the lead parts of your soul into gold. And how do you do that? The phoenix is part of that. You have to burn everything down before you can rise from the ashes. It's almost like that fight club moment, right? Where, Where we get the Tyler Durden saying, first you have to know, not fear, know you are going to die, mm-hmm. right? 
that's kind of the phoenix. That's the rebirth. The what the old a myth as old as time rebirth, right? Yeah. And so I think the phoenix is the symbol of the of alchemy too. I believe mm, that makes sense. And I mean, if we extend it to Harry in this Gryffindor Slytherin dichotomy, like Dumbledore by reminding Harry that it was his choice to be in Gryffindor that was the main thing gives Harry a chance to rebirth himself into Gryffindor, if you will, to not exactly. let to not let the memory of Slytherin haunt him, not yeah. let not like. Okay, maybe you looked like Tom Riddle. Maybe you have a similar background to Tom Riddle. But that phoenix allows you to wash your hands of anything Tom Riddle or Voldemort-esque, and you can take a different path than him. You're not destined to the same one as Tom. Yeah, And so there's a rebirth there, too. Yeah, it's really good. So, yeah, deep, deep mythological storytelling at the end of this book. So, yeah, I just, I was... um, I was so impressed with Philosopher's Stone that I didn't I didn't really expect to be like even doubly impressed with Chamber of Secrets, especially because I'd already seen the movie. But man, what a book! Basically, yeah. a perfect book. The great one. Yeah, and such a great setup for later in the in the in the lore. So. And yeah, we're and we're going down that road. <laughs> yes. Uh, stay tuned for five more of these (laughs) (laughs) so just again we really uh are appreciative of any listener um you can find us at facebook really true fiction you can send us an email really true fiction at gmail.com you can also uh subscribe to us on any of the main podcasting apps and um if you like or feel so inclined to give a rating or a review we'd really appreciate that this has been another episode of really true fiction my name is luke mason And my name is David Parker. May the Chamber of Secrets be with you. And also with you. Thank you.